Hello, and welcome to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. Our host is John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And no, he's not making that up. Each week, we'll talk to amazing leaders from around the country and just about every field you can think of and pick up truths from their hard-won wisdom. In the words of John's fifth-grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it'll be fast, fun, and we'll get it done. So please join us for an inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. I'm John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Team. Not making that up. And my guest today is Gordon Red Berenson, well-known to any hockey fan, of course, Played for 17 years in the NHL and coached 33 years at the University of Michigan. Coach, good morning. Well, good morning, John. I'm glad to be here. And uh, it'll be interesting because I was around when you had that bad team. <laughs> yes, you were. You, I think you saw them once or twice. And you know my captain, Mike Henry, quite well, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then I saw them emerge. So it's a good story. Well, I appreciate that. Red was kind enough, by the way, to come down and see us a few times along the way, which I don't think it was for professional reasons, but you saw my later captain, Chris Fragner, of course, went up being uh, one of your players as well. Not a star for your team, but uh, an honest graduate. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, that's what coaches are looking for, good people, good students, and good teammates. I love all that. Well, keep it direct here in red style. First of all, passion. Uh, your passion for the game, of course, goes back to when you were six years old. I love the story. You know I'm going to ask you this one. It's Christmas, 1946. You're six. You've got a party line in Regina, Saskatchewan. If you don't know where that is, people, get get on your computers because you're not going to find it otherwise if you're not a Canadian. Uh, capital of the province, north of North Dakota. Um, a party line. Look that one up too, kids. Uh, not everyone had their own phone number back in those days. And you did not even have indoor plumbing, correct? Not yet. I mean, we, we eventually got it. I don't remember when, but at the time we didn't have indoor plumbing. We, but we hauled water from down the road, and that was an experience because that turned into an ice rink if you left the, the tap running. We had a place to skate or play, play shinny. But nevertheless, we grew up in a wintry climate. It was perfect for hockey. No complaining about that. Perfect for hockey. How about that, people? So six years old, it's Christmas, arguably the greatest Christmas of your life. Well, I was so caught up in hockey, and uh, and of course my my mom knew it, and so sure enough, I got a pair of fiber shin pads, and in those days, most of the shin pads were made out of bamboo sticks that were uh, vertical in the in the shin pads, and but to get fiber shin pads, it was like fiberglass in those days, but that was a treat. And then I got some new hockey gloves, and and we couldn't afford that stuff. So I know my mom really scrimped to make that happen. And I couldn't believe it. I was so excited. So I got on the phone and I called my friend, Harold Brock, who lived just down the street. And it turned out it was only five in the morning. And his mother <laughs> answered the phone. She said, do you know what time it is? And I said, no, I know. But I, but tell Harold I've got some new shin pads and hockey gloves. And I have to play. We have to meet at the corner and we'll shoot pucks at each other. And so we did. <laughs> Uh, the line you told me earlier, of course, is when you said, you know, it's 5 a.m. Yes, but this is important. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> As though your house is on fire, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, it was, a good, it was a good time. Well, your mom must have scrimped for that, as you said, but she must have been pleased to see the reaction. She got her money's worth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And those, uh, and those gloves lasted, I don't know for how long, but they lasted a long, long time. And so did the shin pads. So it was a great Christmas for a young hockey player. Well, you're passionate about the game from the start, of course. You uh, ended up being one of the great players for the St. Pat's Junior Program in Regina, which launched a lot of careers, of course. And now, when you're a senior in high school, you've got a choice between uh, various colleges or the NHL. The Montreal Canadiens owned your rights. Frank Selke, who's now got his name on a big trophy, of course, for the NHL, was the general manager of this legendary team, the Flying Frenchman. He wanted you, and he told you not to go to college. Well, they, when I took, when I brought up college, they said, no, you don't want to go to college. You'll never play in the NHL if you go to college because there weren't any college players in the NHL then. And uh, and then it came down to, well, if you might someday play a game in the NHL, but you'll never make a living in the NHL. And, and you might not even be a pro hockey player. 
if you go to school. So that was the attitude that the pros had about school. And for some reason, it was stuck in my head that I was going to go to school. I was going to graduate from college. And the U.S. offered scholarships. Canadian schools didn't. So it was a no-brainer to go to the U.S. And ironically, our junior coach for the Regina Pats, uh, while I was growing up, was a guy named Murray Armstrong. And he left about the time I was ready to try out for the Pats. He left and took the University of Denver job. So he tried to recruit all the young players from Regina, and he got quite a few of them. And uh, and, and I didn't choose to go to Denver, and I waited. And, uh, and finally, we found Michigan, and Michigan was a really good fit. There were five of us came to school together. But in the meantime, Montreal were disappointed, and they told me I was making a big mistake. This goes back to a topic we talked about with Tim Williams, the vice president now at Meyer. Uh, the grocery store chain, uh, the ability and really the need to define yourself. All the great leaders I've come across so far, you, Tim Williams, Carol Hutchins, a bunch of others, of course, Jim Hackett, have always this moment of truth where either the world tells you what to do or you decide for yourself what to do. And in almost all of these cases, you guys decided for yourself that the world can do what the world does. I'm doing this. For an 18-year-old kid, 17-year-old kid, to make that decision took a lot of guts back then. And it seemed to get easier each time you made one of these tougher decisions. Well, I think it did, and, and it wasn't like I had my head in the in the sand. Like, I talked to old hockey players that would come back to our town in Regina, and they would say, you don't want to be a hockey bum like me, they would say, according to their life. You know, hockey was over. They only played a few years. There was no money in it, and yet it was every kid's dream to play in the NHL. And, uh, and so I listened to them, and they said, if you can get an education, get it. And if you're going to make it as a hockey player, you'll make it. And I took that as being great advice. Mm -hmm. And you took it, of course. Now, on the U.S. college front, you had many choices. Denver was one of them, of course, with Murray Armstrong, who won several NCAA titles, run a serious program there. But how did you pick Michigan? Well, and, and Murray Armstrong was a great coach. There was no question. And, and Denver was an – we didn't know much about Denver. But uh, what we did find out was that when we went to the library and we looked up the, the top hockey schools in the country – University of Michigan at that point had won the most NCAA championships, and they were also ranked uh, as high or higher than any other school that offered scholarships academically. academically. And so we felt that was the best of both worlds because, frankly, at the time, there was a, a real unknown factor in regards to the quality of U.S. colleges. The Canadians thought they had the best schooling and uh, we didn't know much about the Americans. But when we read that Michigan was right up there with the Ivy schools, then that that prompted a, a, a letter to Al Renfrew, the coach. And he responded. And the next thing you knew, we were coming to Michigan. Now, of course, you were the head coach at Michigan for 33 years. Do you ever have a kid write you a letter from a library saying, I want to come to your school, I'll bring four friends? <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, that's... If only. <laughs> That's the way it worked out. And, you know, that was just flying down. I mean, Michigan is 1,500 miles from Regina. And so we weren't going to be uh, taking the bus. And as it turned out, I was the only one that came down on a paid visit. And it was my first it was my first trip in a plane, period. And it was a big thrill. And we, I flew into Windsor, Ontario. Hmm. And then Renfrew, Al Renfrew picked me up there. And he was a great salesman. He was a great person. And he was a great coach as well. And uh, it was an easy sell. When I saw Michigan, I thought, wow, this is it's like a different world. The, the football stadium would hold the whole city of Regina. And uh, <laughs> it, it was just, and I didn't, I don't even remember much about the hockey rink, but the football stadium was, it still is pretty impressive. Right. And uh, so anyway, I was blown away. And I went back to Regina and I talked to my teammates that wanted to go to school and, and we all agreed to go to Michigan together. In Red Barrington's senior year, 28 games, 43 goals, a record that still stands, which is stunning to me, 1962 this is. Uh, that's 60 years ago. There's been a ton of talent that has gone through here since then. Brendan Morrison, of course, many others, bonafide NHL players. That record has still stood the test of time. What did you learn from Al Renfrew, one of the world's sweetest guys, not the usual kind of hockey coach, very funny. Uh, to say the least. I recall your line from him is, 
He'd give you the shirt off his back, but the shirt was not worth much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but Al was, he was a great uh, mentor and a great role model for us. And he had some ho really good hockey credentials. And he played with a lot of the players that ended up playing for the Red Wings. And so he had a legitimacy to him that was, that was impressive. And so when he told you to do something, you knew it was the right message. And, uh, and so he knew what he was talking about, and, and he made hockey fun for us, mm. and I ended up having a lot of success. So did my teammates. And so we had uh, we had a really good experience at Michigan, and I think that's one of the reasons I ended up back at school coaching is because of the experience that Al Renfrew provided for us. Kind of love that. You do, in fact, go to the NHL the day after your last college game. Um, a consolation game in the NCAA Final Four. Um, unexpectedly, you're supposed to play Michigan Tech in the finals. Didn't work out that way. You're upset the night before. Happens that way. I recall talking to you earlier about this when you said at the time, you don't think about it too much. And now, 60 years later, it kind of ticks you off, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I've been. I, I've thought about that a lot. It was really disappointing that we thought we had the team in 1962. And, uh, and we got upset by Michigan Tech. And they were a good team. We went head-to-head -head with them a lot. And Michigan Tech was a powerhouse program, but we thought we were better that year, and uh, and we didn't prove it. So that was disappointing. But the next thing you knew, I was driving in a car to, from, uh, I think it was Utica, New York, we'd played. Mm -hmm. And right. uh, and we drove to Kenny Reardon, the vice president of Montreal Canadiens, drove me to Boston. And the next night I played for Montreal against Boston. That was my first game. And there were only about three or four games left in the schedule in the NHL and then the playoffs started. So they kept me around for the playoffs. I got some good playoff experience and uh, I was on my way pro-wise. In, in the meantime, I had to come back to school and miss a couple of practices with Montreal to finish my final exams. And they looked at me kind of sideways, but they <laughs> let me go. You know, there was nobody on the team going to school at that time. And uh, here I was writing final exams at Michigan in the business school. So it worked out good. I paid my dues. And it was the right thing to do at the time. And I look back and I think it was still the right thing to do. Of course, Frank Selke, the general manager, say, of course, Frank Selke, the general manager when you're a high school senior, as well as in 62, he was the guy who said, if you go to college, you'll never play in the NHL. And that night you proved him wrong, correct? Well, it, it wasn't about proving him wrong, but it was about showing myself that, you know, this was a good way to do it. And uh, and I did it, and it worked. And and ironically, the rookie of the year in the NHL that year was a player in Chicago that had gone to Colorado College, and he was also from Regina, and his name was Red Hay. Oh sure. And uh, and Bill Red Hay had gone to Colorado College. Montreal owned him. They uh, they traded his rights. He played in the minors for a year in Winnipeg, and then Montreal traded his rights to Chicago, and he ended up playing with Bobby Hull on the line uh, with Murray Balfour, who was also from Regina. But uh, he was the rookie of the year that year, and that was another example. I'm not the only one. This is, this is, this is going to happen to a lot of serious players and serious students. But that was the very start, really, of the college, U.S. college to NHL pipeline, which was unheard of then, but now, of course, it's the rule, not the exception, with four players at Michigan uh, drafting in the top five last year. Did you ever think you'd see that? No, no, I never thought I'd see that. And I never thought I'd see the number one pick overall uh, come out of college either. But we've had some really good uh, good players come to, to Michigan over the years. This year, uh, they just happen to have, a, 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 I guess, the right age, and the right players that uh, were as good as anybody for their age in the world. So mm -hmm. it was impressive. Good stuff. So in your 17-year NHL career, uh, you played for the legendary Toe Blake and Scotty Bowman, arguably the two greatest coaches of all time. Uh, you played with Al Arbor, I believe. Um, and he, of course, ended up being one of the great coaches as well. Uh, when you look back at the 17 years, who was your best coach and why? Well, I would say Scotty Bowman was, uh, you know, and like you say, Toe Blake was a great NHL coach, and but I was a rookie coming up, and he didn't really uh, warm up to uh, me in particular because I was a college guy, and they didn't 
really know what to expect from a college guy. Not wasn't much, but um, nevertheless, they, Montreal would send me down for a while. I'd be in Hull, Ottawa, and the coach in Hull, Ottawa was Scotty Bowman, and so I got a chance to really play in uh, in Hull, Ottawa. And Scotty was the coach. He and Sam Pollock were kind of co-coaches, and, uh, and then that sent me back to Montreal, and I wouldn't play. And so, you know, they had Bellevue and Henry Richard and Baxter and Goyette. I mean, they had a stacked team in Montreal. It was hard to break in the lineup, and it just never really worked out for me. But when I went to the minors, I played well enough to play myself back into the NHL. And eventually, uh, I got traded to New York and then eventually to St. Louis. Well, Scotty Bowman ended up in St. Louis uh, at the same time, and uh, and we connected really well. He knew I could play, and I knew that he knew I could play, and that was kind of a two-way confidence, and I played my best hockey for Scotty Bowman. What made him a great coach? Well, he knew the game, he knew the players, and uh, he knew how to push you past your comfort zone. He knew how to win. Uh, it was he, he just was a really, uh, I'd say, an accomplished student of the game and student of the players. He'd been a scout for a long time hmm. because he was injured as a junior player. He had a serious head injury, and uh, and so he had to retire as a player, but he became a scout for Montreal, and he knew all the players. So And I, and I could see that. I could see he knew how to uh, get to some players and how to play against certain players and so on and so forth. So uh, he was a great player. Uh, leader of our team and he was a great mentor and a great coach for all of us and al arbor was there he uh, scotty he wanted to pick uh, players that had played on winning teams and hmm. we had quite a few of us from montreal that were on that team i recall also of course watching scotty bowman with the red wings when i was at the detroit news he was not too interested in very talented guys who scored a lot but could not play defense that was not his thing he wanted complete players eisman became i believe a complete player underneath him Guys who block shots, kill penalties, back check. Uh, he was not interested in flash and dash, but the things you don't see in the paper. Well, that's true. And, you know, he knew talent, but he also knew what it took to win. And it's not always talent. And so we, we had a team in St. Louis. We had the lowest goals against in the NHL most every year I was there yeah. with Scotty. And we had some great goalies, too, and he appreciated that. And he had Jock Pont near the end of his career and Glenn Hall. Uh, near the end of his career, and there's no two goalies any better than that at the time. <laughs> so you look at the goals against average, and and our defensemen were they they prided themselves on the goals against, and so the forwards were uh, more responsible on that team than any other team I ever played on. Huh. Did not know that aspect. 1972, you get picked for the Summit Series. Americans, let me clue you in here about this thing. In '69, of course, man walked on the moon. That's a pretty big deal. In 72, in game eight of this eight-game series, Paul Henderson scores the final goal in Moscow to beat the Soviets four wins, three losses, one tie. More Canadians saw that goal than saw the moon landing. When I brought this up to Brad Park, he said, yeah, because it's more important. (laughs) (laughs) He He had a point there if you're Canadian. So this is a gigantic deal. Very few Americans know about it. But your pick for this team, that in itself is a very big deal. They picked the top 35 guys in their mind in the NHL, which by then had already expanded to 14 teams. So just getting the call was a big deal, and Harry Sinden was your coach. What did you learn about leadership from him, from Phyllis Bozito, from others in that experience? Well, it, and, and really it was a, a mish, mishmash of players from all across the NHL that were Canadians. This was the Canadians against the Russians, and they re- never really played uh, the best Russians, and the Russians had never played the best Canadians. And so we were honored to be on that team. There were about 35 of us. Normally you'd have 20, 25 players, but there were 35 of us so we could have a uh, a training camp and have good scrimmages and so on because we didn't start skating that summer of 72 until late July or early August, and then the series happened in September. And plus we had to get to know each other. Most of us had played against each other, and it wasn't a, a warm and fuzzy feeling. But uh, we had to get to know each other, had to get to like each other. And I think that's where Harry Sinden and John Ferguson did a great job in in kind of getting the players together and, and helping them understand that this was a monumental challenge for all of us 
and we all had to be on the same page. And uh, and we were as we went. I mean, we got disappointed in the first game. We had our ups and downs. But uh, in the end, uh, the Canadian spirit, the Canadian uh, pride in, in, in being good or always having been good uh, came through. And, uh, and, and we had so many great uh, leaders on that team, veteran players and upcoming players that were, were going to be stars and so on. Uh, great goalies, and Tony Esposito and Ken Dryden, Eddie Johnson, uh, defense, great defensemen. I mean, it was a it was a team that really came together in what a two month or less than a two month period, and uh, shocked the world by beating the Russians. In and of course, the first four games were in Canada. We lost the first game in Montreal, which was a shocker. Everyone thought Canada is going to win. It's just a matter of by how many goals. And then the second game in Toronto, Canada did win by maybe one goal. And the third game was a tie. And the fourth game, the Russians blew us out in Vancouver. And then we had to go and play four games in Moscow. And at that point, everyone in Canada had written us off, and they were still in shock. And we lost the first game in Moscow. And uh, But the, the next game, we bounced back, and we started to play the right way, as Harry Sinden would, would say, now that we understood what we were up against with the Russians. And uh, and then we won the last three games in Moscow. It was a memorable uh, event. The, the fans, the pressure, this became not just a hockey series. It became a, a capitalism versus communism. And it was a lifestyle. It was amazing. All the little things that surfaced from that. And we didn't know it at the time as players. We're just playing harder, trying to find a way to beat these Russians in Moscow. And and yet all this was going on in the world stage listening. And we were getting telegrams from all over Canada, from all the schools shut down to watch the games on TV and so on. Like it was a happening that we didn't even know was happening. happening. (laughs) So anyway, it was a great part of our hockey experiences. And here we are, John, it's going to be 50 years. The 50th anniversary is coming up of the 72 series. Just do the math, and uh, and it still has a lot of importance to a lot of people. They remember it. Um, I'm, of course, doing a book on this now with Red's help, as well as the 35 guys in that team. They've all been fantastic. It is amazing. They all thought at the time that, okay, this is cool. It's important. It's very big to them. But they had no idea. Nobody I've talked to said they ever thought it would still be resonating now, 50 years later, and, in fact, growing in some ways bigger than it was at the time. Well, that's right. And, you know, the history books have a way of uh, and not embellishing things. They find out things. The more people look into it, the more they find, geez, I didn't know that. I didn't know that about this or this guy or that guy or this story. But there's so many good stories came out of that. And one of the stories that has really resonated with people is the leadership that came out of that team. And, uh, and not just one or two individuals, but even as a group. Uh, the leadership and the perseverance and the uh, believing in each other and, and the teamwork and on and on and on. All the things that we talk about in the success of a, a sports team or, a, or a, a corporation or an organization, when they do well, it's, it starts at the top and then it resonates through everyone. And if you get the right group, uh, you can't stop them. And that's what we ended up being in 72. John Cooper uh, coached against me, believe it or not, uh, when he was at Lansing Catholic Central. And he's gone on to win two Stanley Cups, which is two more than I currently have. But uh, not looking good for me in that regard. He had a great line. He said, bad teams, nobody leads. Good teams, coaches lead. Great teams, everybody leads. And the last four games in Moscow, that's what you guys had on that team. You guys were all engaged. The game you weren't playing, game five. Uh, a game you're ahead, close loss there at the end. You came rushing down to the locker room, and the guys on the team still remember this, guys I've talked to. And you said, hey, look, you know, keep your cool. We played our best game so far. We can do this. And you recall this, I'm sure. Yeah, we were, uh, we were ahead in the game by a couple of goals, and uh, the Russians came back and, and won the game uh, by a – By one. Yeah, by an important uh, score, obviously, in the third period. But we had played our, our by far our best game, and I think we were just getting into better physical shape because we had had such a short summer training camp. 
And the Russians knew this was coming, and they were in much better physical condition than we were. So we were catching up to them, but we were also coming closer together as a team and starting to rely on certain players to do certain roles for the team. And and that helped the coaches, too, and it helped the players to be put into a role that they could be successful at. And pretty soon, we had a well-oiled machine in the last few games. Mm-hmm. Played like it, of course. Harry Sinden, looking back on it, first of all, for you, was that the most pressurized environment you ever played in? I don't know if it was. We didn't know how pressurized it was. I mean, we we knew it was it was Moscow, and it was uh, a smaller rink than an NHL rink, and a different crowd. Obviously, they were all dressed in dark colors, and and the Canadian fans were all dressed in in bright colors, like like red and and so on. Red was our team jersey color, and uh, so there was a a distinction. But I, we didn't feel the pressure. We just felt the situation. Like, this is a game we have to win. And, and to win, we have to do this and this and this. And so I, I think everyone got on the same page. And then it wasn't a much, as much about, you know, 35 players. You can't make them all happy. I mean, you can only dress 20 players. So we had a lot of players that never played at all. And we had other players that played in a couple of games, like, like me. And uh, other players played in most of the games. And so we all had to support each other. And I think that's what happened when we left Canada. When we were in Canada, there was so much uh, second guessing and finger pointing about why we weren't doing better. that it was like we had to get away and get together again and say, OK, let's we got to do this, whether our own fans are behind us or not. Turned out they were, but there was a point we weren't sure. Of course, Vancouver game four. Uh, one more question on this point, and then we'll move on to your coaching career, of course. Harry Sinden, the coach of that team that was down 1-3-1 and one, with three games left, got to win them all, got to win them all in Moscow. Otherwise, his career's over, which is pretty obvious at that point. He said that a great gift he got was from you. When you told him, Harry, you can't keep them all happy. You got to go with the guys who are playing the most, who are in game shape. And that's a big thing for a guy like you who can be in the lineup and played well in game six, uh, to tell them, to give them the freedom, basically, to not worry about us. Um, he remembers that to this day. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was good advice, and I thought uh, I thought it was important that he understand that too. That this you, you're not going to win a popularity contest unless we win, <laughs> and uh, and we're not going to win by changing the lineup every night and, and giving this guy a game and that guy a game and so on. No matter what you promise people, uh, we've got to make a commitment to the players that are playing every night, and let's back them and, and let them play, and and that's what he did, and good for him. I'm John U. Bacon, the host of the podcast, Let Them Lead. I'm with Gordon Red Berenson, the legendary player and coach at the University of Michigan. We'll be right back after this break. This podcast grew out of John U. Bacon's latest book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. In it, John Bacon explains how they turned around the Ann Arbor-Huron High School hockey team from worst to first in three years by changing the culture, building trust, and letting the players take over the team. Boston Globe columnist Dan Shaughnessy said, Let Them Lead is where Ted Lasso meets the Mighty Ducks. You can order Let Them Lead from John U. Bacon at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Bam. Welcome back. This is John Bacon, the host of Let Them Lead, the podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. My guest again is Gordon Red Barrington, the legendary player and coach at the University of Michigan. We've talked about your playing career. It lasted about uh, almost 17 years more than you expected. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when you're growing up as a kid, your dream is to play in the NHL, but the the odds are you're not going to play in the NHL. And so it really... Uh, it, it's gratifying to look back and, and think that I did it my way and I went to college, which was against the grain, and then still made the NHL and then survived. And I was lucky. I, you know, I I started off there were only six teams in the NHL, John, and uh, then they expanded to 12 in 1966-67 and then eventually to 14 and then to 16 and so on, and now we have 32 but uh, by the time I was finished playing, I think we were up in the 20s. And so that kept me playing a little longer than I might have if we only had six teams. And you become a head coach, of course, assistant coach in St. Louis, one of your probably your longest team, no doubt, in the NHL. Become the head coach in 1980-81. And your first year as a head coach, your first full season, 
you're named the NHL Coach of the Year. What do you emphasize when you're the head coach? Well, I knew the players. I'd played with most of the players on the team. And then when I, I would say they retired me, and I was about 39. And so I, I, I just made it clear to the players. I knew how good they could be. And, uh, and I'm going to try and help them get there. Uh, it's fine to say I could have been good or I should have been good, but uh, I, I said, hey, you guys have a chance to be good. And, and that's what we're going to do is we're going to be good. And we were one of the most improved teams in the league for a few years. So that was, I was still a young coach. I didn't know what I didn't know. I thought I knew everything as a player uh, in terms of coaching. I didn't know anything about coaching until I <laughs> stood behind the bench. So it was a learning experience for me. It's not unlike being a parent. You can always criticize your parents. It's pretty easy to do. We've all probably enjoyed doing that at some point or other until your dad. And guess what? <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's a little more complicated than you thought. So what we take for granted is the things that our parents did right, of course. But uh, then what happens? The NHL is the NHL. It is a business. After one year, after winning the NHL Coach of the Year, of course, St. Louis actually fires you the next year. This is a brutal, brutal business. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, it, it really, it, I can't say it broke my heart, but it, it, it came pretty close to it. And because I was really invested in emotionally and family-wise, I mean, we were we were in St. Louis. We were St. Louis Blues through thick and thin, and uh, and that would, had been the best hockey experience we'd had in the NHL. And so it was really tough to uh, to get fired. But you know, you wake up the next day, the sun's out, and you start planning, okay, what's the next step? And so we ended up going to Buffalo. Scotty Bowman, ironically, was coaching Buffalo, and he asked me to come there and be an assistant coach. And so we just kept kept going, and, uh, and that was it was good for me. I got to learn a lot about Scotty and his tactics and his uh, philosophy being a, uh, an assistant coach with him, maybe more than being a player for him. We had an earlier guest, Richard Sheridan, the founder and CEO of Menlo Innovations, also the author of a great book, Joy, Inc., just sold quite well. But he had a great line that he gives to business school students, guys like you back in the day. Uh, he said that uh, you really start learning about what it means to be a leader after you've been fired once. <laughs> and that gets their attention because they don't expect they'll ever get fired, of course. They're, yeah. they're invincible. They're made of gold. You, of course, got your MBA at Michigan in 65 why your name is being engraved on the Stanley Cup. This might be one reason why you did it. You never were beholden to the NHL. Well, that's true. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be a desperate, uh, let's say, retired hockey bum. And, uh, and I wanted to have something to fall back on. There's life after hockey. But when I went through that firing in St. Louis, and I got a phone call from my old teammate, Al Arbor, who is now a young aspiring coach himself, and he said, well, now you've, you're a real coach because you've been fired. So that uh, that statement you made was made a long time ago by a, a coach who became a pretty good coach, Al Arbor. Did that make you feel better when Al told you that? Well, yeah, he did. I mean, he said, it's not the end of the world. He said, I've been fired too, but, you know, now I'm winning Stanley Cup. So With Ben, of course, the New York, New York Islanders. That was right. a generous phone call. Yeah. What did you learn from being fired, if I can ask? Well, I learned that... Uh, it's not always fair. It's not always about what you think it's about. Like there was some ownership problems with our team at that point. And, um, and the change in ownership went from the Solomons to uh, Ralston Purina. And then uh, the CEO of Ralston Purina, who I got along with great, uh, he retired and a new guy came in and right away he changed Everything, everything Ralston Purina owned, including the St. Louis Blues, was up for sale. And so in theory, I was up for sale and I was gone. And so the general manager, he took over the team. But nevertheless, it was it was going to get sold again. So anyway, it was a tough uh, experience, but it was the real world. The real world. And you only control so much. That's one of the lessons there, of course. Well, and you know, the good thing is I had enough confidence as a player and now as a coach that I thought I could coach somewhere else if I had to. I didn't want to. I mean, I really want, oh, the only place I wanted to coach was St. Louis. But then I realized, you know, this if you're going to stay with this profession, you're going to move around more than you want to. Mm -hmm. And so that happened. We went to Buffalo and, and then eventually Michigan from Buffalo. And then, of course, people don't realize you've got kids 
two daughters, two sons. They're in high school. They're in junior high school, and everybody moves. Everybody moves, and uh, and then we have to leave one or two behind each time because they're enrolled in college or or whatever. And so, and and even our kids. I remember my oldest daughter Kelly. She came home one day and she said, "Dad, I." I don't know what to tell my teacher. They said, where are you from? And I didn't know what to tell them. <laughs> and she was born in Ann Arbor my senior year. But we had two of our kids were born in Montreal, and, and the fourth one was born in St. Louis. So, But they weren't sure where they were from because we were moving around so 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 much, it seemed, anyway. Yeah. And, of course, in 84, Don Canham, the legendary AD at Michigan, athletic director, calls you up for a job at U of M. He tried to get you twice before that, but now... Luck was on his side because your oldest son, of course, Gordy, and a good friend of mine, was, I believe you're unpacking him into a West Quad that day when Don Canham gave you a call. Well, we, I brought Gordy over to Michigan, and, uh, and, I, and I had a meeting lined up with Canham. And I'd been in Buffalo for two years, and they were good years. But uh, I was still open for, you know, what was next in the, on our career chart. And uh, and I really had a good, I had a soft spot for Michigan and Al Renfrew and Al was still here. He wasn't coaching, but he was running the ticket office. But I felt like, you know, these were my friends back in Michigan from a long time ago. And when he offered me the job, uh, I thought about it for a few days and then we decided we'd take a leap. I talked to Scotty about it. He thought it was a good idea. And he always had a lot of respect for, for colleges and, uh, and college hockey coaches in particular, he thought they were, you know, they were they weren't just hockey guys. They were academic, you know. They had degrees and master degrees and so on and so forth. So he he appreciated the college game and the uh, and the coaches that went into it. So he he endorsed it and supported it. And so I said yes. And now I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't know all the <laughs> recruiting rules and all the recruiting opportunities where the players were and so on. But I learned real quick that uh, uh, it's a fast-moving pace, and pretty soon I was there for three or four years, and it was like it went by just like that. And uh, but I, I liked it; I got inv- really invested in it, and and it was a good move. Mm-hmm. You didn't have a whole lot when you started. The team was at the bottom of then the CCHA, which was not that great a league at the time. It's not the WCHA that you had played in, of course, with Wisconsin and Minnesota and so on, North Dakota. Um, the pay was pretty abysmal, I think, on the grand scale compared yep. to what they're doing now and even the NHL at that time. Uh, you had some players on scholarship who weren't good enough to play on the team, but you honored those scholarships. But you did have a few things going for you, all, in my opinion, intangibles. You had a clear vision for what you knew the program could become, the same way you did in St. Louis, but probably deeper with Michigan, given your ties there. Um, and you also knew what a quote-unquote Michigan man looked like and what you wanted these guys to be on campus. Well, and, that's, and that was a big reason why I went to school, was to get an education and to have something to fall back on when hockey was over. And so I tried to uh, encourage our players to take advantage of Michigan academically uh, as well as hockey-wise and, and, and understand that the odds of them making the NHL were very slim. That didn't mean you weren't going to make it. It just meant the odds were slim. And you had to be lucky to make it, and I was lucky. And uh, and maybe you had to be good as well, and you had to be in the right place at the right time. But nevertheless, I, I felt I knew what it should be like at Michigan. And I told the players that. I mean, we this is going to be different. We're going to change the culture here. We're going to change the attitude. We're going to change the work ethic. We're going to be a lot better in everything we do than we are right now. And so... And some of the players now, when they talk to me years later, they said, we knew right away it was going to be good, but we weren't going to be there long enough to be part of it. Mm. Well, those guys were pretty brave in asking for a coaching change. They knew they were risking their own scholarships in the process. They helped to get you in here. Don Canham told me he never, he made it a point not to talk to athletes of any team because they're bound to complain about playing time or whatever. He said, but when you have 20 guys come in with a letter signed by all of them, you have to take it seriously. And that's how... Of course, that led to you being hired at Michigan. Uh, it took six years to get back to the tournament, which is about probably five years longer than you thought it would take. Uh, maybe not. But uh, that was a slow process. But in the process, um, you never escaped your values. You never lost your values. One thing I've noticed with all great leaders, the leaders I truly admire, is they're willing to lose a game 
to stick to their principles. They're even willing to get fired if it came down to it to stick to their principles. Um, and they don't play favorites. If the starting goalie is late in the parking lot, the bus still leaves. And I've seen the best coaches do that. I've seen you do that. One of the most famous examples is Marty Turco, longtime NHL player, great goalie, great guy, one of my better friends, I'd say. He played a mission, of course, won two national titles. But you told him at one point, if you miss one more class, I'm going to bench you for the next weekend. Wasn't a Michigan rule. Wasn't a Big Ten rule, a CCHA rule, an NCAA rule. It was your rule. And, of course, he misses one class right before you play Michigan State, the arch rival. And your line to me at the time was, well, I kept up my end of the deal, which was, I'm going to sit you. It cost you two games against your arch rival, Michigan State, but you stuck to your guns. Please explain to us the thinking behind a tough decision like that. Because most coaches make the obvious call for most coaches, which is you play the starter anyway, and you try to win two games. Yeah, and that's and I could see that. You know, I've been through that before, and uh, and I'd seen coaches uh, wimp out on that, and then the whole team pretty much started taking advantage of the the rules or the the system, and uh, and we weren't going to have that. So, explain to Marty, this is an easy decision for me. I mean, this is if we don't win these games, it's going to cost us first place, and that's important to our team and our fans and our school, but. Um, You've made a you've made a big mistake, and it's you're not going to play, mm-hmm. and so on. I and I pronounced that to announced it to the TV people. Everyone wanted to know why Turco wasn't playing. I said because he skipped a class, and he'd given his word he wouldn't, but he did. And I gave my word I I would I would bench him if he did, and and I did that. So it, it was a tough tough for the players. It was tough pill to swallow. But I will say that the team got the message, and so did Marty, and we went on to win a national championship that year. And so good for them and good for everyone to stick by us. That might have been in some ways your highest character team. I hate to rank them that way because they've all been high character teams. But in 96, you win your first NCAA title in Cincinnati uh, with a very strong team. Mostly juniors were the best, strongest class, but still a very strong team. 97 was, without question, in my opinion, the most talented Michigan team ever assembled until perhaps this year. Um, I would even argue perhaps the most talented team ever assembled in NCAA history because you had 11 seniors in that team, 10 going to play pro hockey. That's, <laughs> that's crazy. That's, that's nuts. One of the lesser heralded ones was John Madden, who had one of the longest careers in the NHL. That's how good that team was. Marty Turco, who is a man of high character, we must say, he had a great line about that 97 team. He said, man, that team, we can give the opposing coach the roster and a pen. He said, go ahead, scratch off any five names you want. <laughs> We're still beating you by three. Yeah. <laughs> That's how loaded that team was. I recall so many 10-goal games that cost a local pizza joint uh, free pizzas for all those with the ticket. And I guess they did it four or five times. So that deal was gone the next year. But the 98 team had none of those things. You had you know, three big seniors, Billy McCult, uh, Matt Hur, another captain, of course, Marty Turco. He had a young team, 10 freshmen. On paper, that team should not have gone very far. But after that weekend, with Turco out, is when you guys started going on a bit of a roll, winning a lot of one-goal games, a very narrow margin. But by the time you got to Boston for the Final Four, the Frozen Four in hockey, uh, that team felt determined. Well, they had a chance. I mean, they, they knew they had a chance, and they were coming together. And you talk about role players, and whether it was Bobby Hayes or, or Chris Fox, uh, who had a great tournament, and uh, Bubba Berenswig, and on and on. Uh, David Hunsinger, we had a, a bunch of young defensemen, and they all played their best hockey. And, and uh, you know, our freshmen scored uh, all our goals, and then I think we won 2-1 in overtime against a, a better Boston College team, and our freshmen scored both our goals. But it was... Uh, it was Turco and McCall and Matt Hur and Chris Fox that led that team, and they got the freshmen going, and then it became a team. And it was one of those teams, you know, one of those games you probably shouldn't win. I I said after the game, the best team doesn't always win, and uh, people looked at me sideways, but it was true. But the year before, the year before that, the best team doesn't always win, and we lost, and and we were the best team. Everyone knew it, but but we lost. So the best team doesn't always win. But it was um, it was a good run for Michigan. It was a good run for me. Like we, it took us a while to win a national championship, and it was frustrating. All the good players that never got a chance to win, and then when we finally did, it, it it's like it brought the program together. The alumni, 
I mean, Kent Brothers was watching the game up in Newfoundland. And when Brendan Morrison went on ESPN after the game and said, this win, and this was the one in Cincinnati, this win is for all the guys that played at Michigan that never got a chance to win. Well, Kent, you know, he's a big, big man, but he was, he was brought down in tears. He just felt so, he was still part of the program. And, and anyway, that's, that's what college does. I think it brings a group of guys together and they're friends for life. At its best, of course. And yeah, when Brandon Morrison says that, 10, 20 seconds after scoring this overtime goal, there's no rehearsal, there's no script. You don't have notes. And for him and one of his greatest moments of his life, to remember all the guys came before. Yep. I've got a few pages on that in the book, Blue Ice, which I wrote with your help, of course, uh, because everybody from around the country, around the world, all tuned in, all the old Michigan guys, and they all, yep. a lot of big, tough dudes started crying that That's day. That's right. So, yep. No, that was, I mean, that was the, the heartbeat of the program, really, was players like that and that attitude, and, uh, and it showed up on the ice. The difference between a winning team and a strong program. What's the difference? Well, I, I think luck has got something to do with it, John. I mean, there's no question that injuries can be unlucky and uh, and uh, goalposts can be lucky or unlucky, depending on which end of the rink it is. But uh, the confidence factor, the expectations, the preparation. I mean, when we went to, we went to about three frozen fours, maybe four, before we got to Cincinnati, and every time it was a disappointment. And we all decided, the coaches and the players, we talked about it and we said, we have to go to these venues on a, on a business trip. It can't be a, a tour where we're saying, oh, look at all the nice buildings or look at this or look at that. We've got to go there on a business trip and we know what our, our, our goal is. Our goal is to win that championship. Nothing less than that. It's not going to be close. It's not going to be, oh, well, it was overtime or we were close. This is going to be, and that was the business trip in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And that was the Morrison and Stephen Halko and Botterill and, 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 and Looning and Madden and Mike Lake and so on. They had a great uh, uh, attitude about this, this particular Frozen Four. They'd been to other Frozen Fours and they knew that we just didn't, we weren't in the right mindset. When we got to Cincinnati, we were in the right mindset. Even, uh, yeah, Halko and others have told me in the locker room beforehand, they're relaxed. They're playing air guitar and so on. Now they got focused when the time came. But death grip on the stick was also over with. But it shows you, as you said, about getting fired at St. Louis. You've used failure and your team has used failure to get ready for success. Sometimes you need to get punched in the nose a couple times before you figure out how the game works, right? That's right. Well, that's true. I mean, sometimes you have to lose to learn how, to, how much it takes to win. And uh, and I think even at the college level, you know, we don't play 80 games like the NHL does, but we might play 40, and they're going to be 40 tough ones, and and there's not much to choose between the best teams. So we were the best team when we didn't win, and we were the and we weren't the best team when we did win. Well, key there, of course, is the most talent does not always win; it's everything else that goes with it. Third and fourth line guys, a little bit of luck, some grinding, and so on. Um, if you're going to give advice to not just coaches, but leaders coming up today, and that's who's listening to this show, um, 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 35-year-olds, what advice would you give them? Well, I think you have to know what you're trying to do. Like we're, you know, we all want to do well, but we have to know what it should be like. Like what are we, what are we really trying to do and, and who do we care about? Like what are our values? And if you don't care about the people that you're trying to inspire or trying to lead, then they're going to get it, and they're they're just going to go the other way, or they're going to go half, uh, they're going to go half speed or half effort, and it's not going to be enough. And you want guys that really care about what they're doing, and it has to start with you. You have to care about what you're doing. You have to know what we're doing and why we're doing it, and then you have to get everyone else as as excited as you are. But this can't be just about you. This is about us. This is why we're here. This is an opportunity. And let's uh, let's have fun. I mean, I've always said work hard and have fun. And it's not silly fun or it's not, you know, bad fun. It's it's genuine fun. There's nothing like leaving it all on the ice and sitting in the locker room after the game and you've lost about 10 pounds and you've given everything you've got and you're ready to fall asleep. That is such a good feeling. But you've won and you know you've paid the price. And you look around and so has everybody else in that locker room. They've all paid the price. So you've got to learn how to make people important. 
make them feel important and give them a role that they can be successful at and they take pride in it. And pretty soon you've got a unit of people that are excited about what they're doing and they want to do well at it. And uh, and you're giving them. And then, like I always felt that I had to lead the team too much in our early years. And then I could get out of the way after a while because they knew exactly where they were going and, and how to get there. Kind of like that uh, side question. By the way, as far as the uh, making them feel important, you got to care about them. You're a tough guy. You're an old school guy from Regina, Saskatchewan. When people ask me about you, knowing you personally, I always say you're a shockingly good listener. Um, and on your canoe trip, of course, you always were soliciting our ideas. You knew what you needed to do and so on. I was the lowest man on that totem pole. And you asked me every day several times, John, what do you think? And you took the advice sometimes and didn't take it other times. But to be asked repeatedly was a stunning revel- revelation for me when I started coaching myself. That works. People want to know that their opinions count, whether they use them or not. Um, you engage them. You did not take the authoritarian approach to your team ever, to my knowledge. And, of course, your assistant coaches, Mel Pearson, Bill, Billy Powers mainly, uh, knew that as well. So you involved them. It wasn't just you leading the charge. And as a result, like John Cooper said, the whole team was leading itself. Yeah. It wasn't just you leading the team. Well, and that's what it should come down to. You know, when you're talking in the corporate world now, people used to be worried about their salaries. It was all about their money they were going to make. And, and or maybe the pensions they were getting or the benefits. And now it's all over the map. I mean, now they're worried about uh, uh, diversity and they're worried about the culture of the, uh, the and the environment and on and on and on. It's an all-encompassing uh, situation that uh, people have to understand. This is a different world now. It's not the old school, uh, you know, let's go boys and, uh, and, and we're going to plow through it or whatever. It's there's a lot more, or a lot more political correctness going on now than there was then. Uh, there's a lot more environmental concerns than there was then, and uh, there's a lot more people concerns than there was then. So it's uh, it's com- it's constantly changing. But I, I I still think a lot of things have stayed the same. You know, your work ethic, your your respect uh, for the game or your job or the people around you. Uh, is is huge, and uh, and if you can't be a good role model for yourself, how are you going to be a good role model for your family, mm-hmm. and your employees, and and so on? So I, I think a lot of a lot has stayed the same, and of course there's a lot of things have changed. I can prove your point about what's not changed. Who was your favorite teacher of all time? How about that question? Didn't expect that one, did you? Well, <laughs> you mean in college or in Anywhere. high school? It could be third yeah. grade. I would say Mr. Allen. What grade? Where? Regina? Yep. He was uh, an eighth grade teacher. And uh, and I looked up to him a lot because he knew that I was a good hockey player. And um, and he would always ask me about it. He was interested. He showed an interest in me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and one day I went in his office and he was smoking. And I was devastated. That he would smoke, like I looked up. Which was not him. illegal back then, and quite common. It was not illegal, and he was sitting in his office in school. It was everybody smoked, and of course I didn't. But uh, your parents smoked. Every it seemed like the majority of the adults smoked, but it bothered me so much that he smoked, and I realized how much I looked up to him, and it, it changed our relationship. I mean, that's how driven or focused I was, and I was in. I can say that was seventh or eighth grade. Now, I was only about 10 or 11 years old. But In Canada, by the way, you skipped a couple of grades along the way and were an early graduate. You look back at Mr. Allen. Um, he obviously cared about you. I already mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, was he easy? Well, it was. It, he was a disciplinarian, and I was a little bit of a... Um, I would say I was a good student, but underachiever. Mm-hmm. Still at that point, and he knew I could be a lot better and and do better, and he yelled at me in class. He made an example of me, and then he took me in his office, and I'll never forget this. And I thought, "Wow, I'm going to get the strap for sure for talking Which back to." Back him. then, you could get the strap. You could get the strap, and the strap was not fun. By the way, it's not a metaphor, kids. There was a strap. The strap was <laughs> on, and on your hands. You had to put your hand out, and he would whack it, and you'd hear the kids that get the strap down the hall. And they were yelling and 
crying and so on. But anyway, I thought, sure, I'm going to I'm going to get the strap. And Mr. Allen took me in his little cubbyhole office and he said, uh, uh, Gord, nobody called me Red then. And he said, Gord, he said, what do you want to do after school? Like if, if you have a chance to be a great player and you also have a chance to be a great student. And I'd really like to see you do well at both. And like, as soon as he showed me that he cared again, mm-hmm. he was supporting me, even though it was in a kind of a confrontational way, but he showed that soft side. And I, that was a great thing. And that helped me continue to focus on the right thing, school and, and sports. Again, I love that. I've asked all my guests that question. I first asked that question by accident in Vancouver about 10 years ago during a speech. I don't know why the hell I asked it, but I'm glad I did. I've asked it almost every speech since. Uh, corporations across the United States, Brazil, Santiago, I've asked in English, Portuguese, and Espanol. Everybody in the world can come up with their favorite teacher in five seconds. Yeah. Everybody can. And, yeah. and it boils down to two things always. It could be third grade. It could be college. It could be a talker like me. It could be a quiet guy uh, like you. Um, but they cared about you and they pushed you. That's the whole thing. Everything else is details. Yeah. I've come to believe that's about it. So as you described them, that's a perfect description. Uh, three takeaways, by the way, from Red Vance. And by the way, one more question. When you look back at the whole experience, uh, you've been leading now for 40 years, of course, since 1980 or so. Uh, what sticks out to you in hindsight? What do you care about the most? What are you most proud of? What means the most to you now with your memories sitting here looking at the river in Ann Arbor? Yeah, well, I, I just think it was it was uh, a trip that I knew where I was going or I knew where I wanted to go anyway, mm-hmm. and I found a way to get there. You know, whether it's been with my family, my friends. We've been married 62 years. Hey. Uh, we have four uh, wonderful kids and eight great-grandkids and so on. And, and sports has been good to me. Hockey's been good to me. Michigan's been good to me. Uh, all the players that I've... I've helped mentor. I've been, you know, lifelong friends pretty much. And they know they can call me anytime. I just feel like I'm in a good place. I did the right thing and uh, I do it again. Yeah, folks, that's what it looks like. One story I wanted to tell back to your earlier point about the guys on your team. Rob Brown loves telling this story. He set the record at the time for the most games in a Michigan uniform. He played every game for four years and that included, of course, some tournaments. Uh, he's showing up uh, to your office after practice. You've got your coat on. You've got your hat on. You've got your briefcase. You're walking down the steps, and Rob Brown comes in. You turn right around and walk up the stairs, take off your hat and your top coat, drop your briefcase, and catch up for half an hour to find out what he's doing in the business world. He can't help you anymore on hockey level. That's, that ship has sailed. And the fact that you spent half an hour just finding out what his life is like at that time that, to me, is what real leadership looks like in a nutshell. You actually do care about these guys. And without that, not much good can happen. Yeah. yeah. And it has to be genuine. You can't pretend. And, and it just, and it was. It was, uh, I cared about Brownie. He he didn't know I even liked him. Like he, because I was, <laughs> you know, I was a taskmaster. But he, he had such a good work ethic. And he was a perfect student athlete in terms of working hard and caring and and being an exceptional student as well. But it wasn't until after he graduated he realized that, you know, I appreciated everything he had done. And um, so anyway, we're still good friends. So. Oh, yeah. He, he reminds me of that story about once a year, in case I forgot <laughs> it. It's already in the book, Rob. I, <laughs> I've done my part here. But uh, three takeaways from Red Baronson, as defined by me, not by him. One, you have to know what you want. That's what he said early on in this interview. Uh, the details might not know, and he didn't know a lot about U of M at that time in terms of NCAA rules and recruiting and whatnot, but you knew what the vision looked like. You knew what the final product was going to look and feel like, and that goes a long way. Um, two, you can't be afraid to lose a game to make your point, and you're always that way, of course. And finally, you've got to care about your players and make them feel important. That includes your employees, too. So that was my three takeaways with uh, Gordon Red Berenson, one of my all-time mentors and heroes as well. I stole a whole lot from him in the book, Let Them Lead. If you read that one, you'll see his fingerprints all over it. Good ideas. There aren't that many good ideas out there, honestly. So you, just, you find the good ones and you steal them and they still work. So, Red, thanks a ton for your time. Well, thank you, John. It's it's my pleasure. It's, it's fun talking about it. And, uh, you know, you're hoping that maybe along the way you're inspiring someone else to do what they 
are maybe destined to do or capable of doing or have always thought about doing and, and we're afraid to try it. Don't be afraid to try it. That's a great note to leave on. So John Bacon, host of Let Them Lead, the podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. Coach, thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. You can connect with our host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, by visiting his website, letthemleadbybacon.com. We hope you had some fun, learned a few things you can use tomorrow, and think about the rest of your life. Come back next week for more Unexpected Lessons in Leadership, and we'll see you then.